ask for the Lord's help this morning before we begin. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, as we come before you and open up our Bibles, I pray that, Lord, you would cause your truth to just come alive in our hearts. Help us to understand what you have revealed. May you open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. God, I pray that we could understand Scripture, that you would change us by it, that we would believe in it, and that you would cause us to daily go forth obeying it and living it out. I pray towards that end. Make us holy. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, near the middle of the very first song recorded in Scripture, a song sung by Moses and the children of Israel, we find these words of praise rendered to God. Moses wrote, Who is like you among the gods, O Yahweh? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises and working wonders? This is Exodus 15:11. And in it, Moses asks a rhetorical question. It's a question that needs no answer because the answer is really patently obvious. Who is like you among the gods, O Yahweh? And the answer, of course, is no one. There, there's no one like our God. God alone is awesome in praise. God demonstrates his infinite superiority over every other God again and again in Scripture, particularly in Exodus over the gods of Egypt as he pulled them and drew them out of bondage. God alone is majestic in holiness, or as some versions say, glorious in holiness. Let me think, what is holiness? Holiness is an attribute or what we might call an essential characteristic of who God is. By nature, God is holy. His very being is holy. Like all of God's attributes, God is perfectly holy. He's perfect in his holiness. And as God's people, as a church, we know this. We, we regularly sing about God's holiness like we did this morning. But it's profitable for us to just pause and remind ourselves what we mean when we say God is holy. See, the holiness of God refers to God's nature as being transcendentally distinct from everything outside of himself. God is entirely separate from everything else. God is in a category all of his own. He is the creator. Everything else is created. And so there is no one like God. He's absolutely distinct from everything else. He's holy, meaning also he's morally and ethically perfect. And thus God's holiness simultaneously requires that God abhor all sin. God hates sin. And it also demands that God expect absolute moral purity from all of his moral beings that he has created. As the Apostle John wrote, God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. And he adds, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. God's holiness, his light, his essence demands that we also walk in holiness as his moral creatures. So God is perfectly righteous. He's absolutely morally pure. He, he exists in untarnished goodness. He is holy. In fact, in, scripture, in the scriptures, there's more emphasis placed on the holiness of God than any other attribute of God or any other description of God. He is the holy one. 
He is the Holy One of Jacob. He's the Holy One of Israel. God's very name is holy. It is his holy name again and again in Scripture. And of God's holiness alone do the angels sing on repeat. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So he is the thrice holy God. He is holy above all. He is holy. And to consider, considering, continue considering this with me, please open up your Bible to Psalm 5. So we consider, continue considering this attribute of God, the holiness of God. And this morning, it's so important for you to see with your own eyes what God has revealed in his word. I hope you'll look in your own Bible at Psalm chapter 5. Psalm 5 gives a startling description of God. It's a description of God moved and acting as a result of his holiness. Follow along with me as I begin reading in verse 4. It says this, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. These are words that would make really the best of men nervous. God takes no pleasure in wickedness. He hates all who do iniquity, the text says. The boastful or the proud, they cannot stand before him. And no evil exists in his presence. It cannot dwell with him. And this should be a little bit alarming to us because we rightly know what the scriptures say about us. And we know Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We know Romans 3.10 says there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's none who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together they've become useless. There's none who does good, not even one. And so if we rightly understand God's holy character and we rightly understand our own fallenness and our own proclivity towards sinfulness, then we should be asking, can we have a place with this God? Well, what type of person then can commune with God? Who can walk with God in this life? If God is so holy, can, can we have fellowship with him? You see, this is the exact question that David takes up in Psalm 15. Psalm 15. Turn over there to Psalm 15. A few of us men in the church have been working together on memorizing this psalm, and I thought it would be good for us to consider together as a congregation. We've completed our time in Luke, and before I jump into 2 Thessalonians, I just thought it would be good to reflect on a psalm, or maybe two or three. We'll see in the weeks ahead. But Psalm 15 is a short psalm with really a challenging message. Look at it with me. Let's read it together. Look at Psalm 15, beginning in verse 1. O Lord, or O Yahweh, who may abide in your tent, who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fears the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, 
nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. This psalm was written by David, and it has sort of a question and answer format. Uh, The question is is given in verse 1, and then the answer follows in verses 2 through 5. And then the psalm ends with a promise. So what we really have is sort of a threefold breakdown. A question, an answer, and then a promise. And if we carefully think about the opening question, we will be well set up to understand the rest of the psalm. So look with me again at, at this opening verse, the opening question. It says this, O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? I've been referring to this as one question, but of course it's two. In the form of ancient Hebrew parallelism, these two questions are almost synonymous. Both questions are directed at the Lord or to the Lord himself, to Yahweh, the one true God of the universe. And David asks, who may be inside your tent? Who may abide in your tent? They say, what tent is this? Well, this is no ordinary tent. This is the tent of Yahweh. It's the tent that David erected or pitched in Jerusalem to house the ark of God. David's son, Solomon, would later come along and construct the temple in its place. But in David's day, the tent really found a permanent location in God's holy city, Jerusalem. In earlier generations, the tent was the meeting place between God and men. Sometimes we find this tent in scripture referred to as the tent of meeting. The tent was a a series of enclosures which functioned as the outer covering of the tabernacle, which of course again housed the Ark of the Covenant. And according to Numbers 18, inside this tent was holy ground that only the Levites, only the priests were allowed to enter. And yet here we find David asking not only to go in, not only to enter, but he wants to abide inside the tent. He wants inside. We say, well, David's a unique figure in Scripture, no doubt. But by position, he's a king. He's not a priest. He's not a Levite. So should, should he, is it even right for him to be there? It seems that David was aware of this. He was aware that for this tent was kind of off limits for him because he employs a very unique word here. The verb translated as abide here actually means to dwell as an alien, to, to dwell as an outsider, as a dependent. And perhaps the best English word we could use is to sojourn. The, this is the verb commonly used in scripture to describe someone living or occupying or residing in a foreign land. For example, in the opening verse of the book of Ruth, Ruth, her husband, and her two sons are forced to leave Judah and to sojourn in the land of Moab. So here David is asking, who may sojourn there in your holy space? Figuratively, I believe he's asking, who is welcome before you? Who's welcome in your presence, O Holy One of Israel? I don't believe He has really the literal tent in his mind here. He's asking something figurative. Who may abide with you? And this is really a wonderful question. The next one is very similar. He says, who may dwell on your holy hill? The holy hill or the holy mountain of Yahweh refers to Jerusalem, another special designated location, a holy place. 
and the holy mountain upon which God's holy city sits. It was special in Old Testament Israel. It was different from all other places on the earth. And here, David uses a different word, translated in my version as dwell. This one means to settle in for an extended period of time. It means to to go in and reside and to put down roots in a place. And not only is David asking to sojourn in God's presence, he wants to reside there. He wants to settle there. He wants to live in God's presence. So so we say, well, what is David asking here? Well, David is asking, O Yahweh, who may reside closely with you? Despite man's fallenness, despite man's sinfulness, despite the fact that I'm an outsider even in your presence, who may commune with you in this life? Who can enjoy intimate fellowship with you? Who may walk with you and closely commune with you? I think that's the heart of these questions. And I think there's a few things we must note about this opening question just as we begin. First, I don't think David here is asking about salvation. He's not asking, how can a person be saved? How can they be forgiven of their sins? David is not here referring to the covering of sins as he does in other Psalms, like Psalm 32, where he says, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. That's not what I think David is talking about here. In fact, I think David is assuming salvation. He's assuming one who's already in a right relationship with God, but he's asking about intimate fellowship with Yahweh. He's asking about a life of communing with God. Note, secondly, that David is not really asking how. He's asking who. He is asking who can dwell in your presence. What do they look like? Describe them. What do they act like? Not, how can a sinful man be forgiven in your presence? He's asking, what does a holy man of God who dwells with Yahweh look like? In New Testament terms, we might say David is asking about sanctification and not justification. He's asking about how can one walk with you in holiness in this life? And finally, we need to realize that just because this psalm is found in the Old Testament, We should not at all be tempted to think that somehow this doesn't apply to us. God's holiness has never changed. And God's requirement for his people to walk in holiness has not changed. So we must let the Holy Spirit minister to us through this ancient Hebrew poem. And what we find in this psalm is David's answer to his own question. He sort of drew us in with these opening questions and then goes on to describe what the set-apart man or woman of God looks like. You see, in this life, it's possible for someone to be saved, for someone to be born again, to have all of their sins forgiven, to be in a right relationship with Jesus Christ, but to really struggle to grow, to struggle to be sanctified. To to struggle to walk in holiness. In other words, to be an unsanctified vessel for the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 3.15, the Apostle Paul referred to this type of person as just merely escaping through the flames. They're saved, but they're lacking serious progress in their sanctification. You see, the true Christian, the one who's in a right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, will grow. But for some Christians, there's only minimal growth in this life. 
The growth is stunted. But David is here asking, who can be holy in this life? Who can be holy enough to commune with you intimately? And this is what David wants to teach us about here in this psalm. After all, David was the man after God's own heart. Understand that not every Israelite was a man after God's own heart. In fact, not even every believing Israelite was a man after God's own heart. Not every Christian is a man after God's own heart. But there are some. There are some men and women of God who are fully devoted to him, set apart, holy men and women, saints, if we might say. And David says in this psalm, show me what they look like. And here he's going to teach us, I'll show you what they look like. Here they are. And so now at this point, if we understand verse 1, I think we ought to be sitting up in our chairs. Our interests ought to be piqued. We ought to be thinking, yes, I want to sojourn with God. I want to dwell in his presence. I want to be a man after God's own heart. I want to know God in this way, and I want to walk with him. I want his blessing in my life. If, if that's you this morning, and I hope it is, I hope you'll pay close attention this morning. In the New Testament, if I were to find an equivalent to this passage, my, my mind is drawn to the Apostle Paul and what he says in Philippians chapter 3. He, he says this, let me read it to you. Philippians 3, 7, he says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things. And I count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a, righteous of, a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of, of faith. He says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. And then he adds, not that I've already obtained it or I've already become perfect, already become mature and holy in every sense, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as, as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards, towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I think that's the heart of Psalm 15. It's a pressing in to know God in a deeper and greater way. And so today, the purpose of this Old Testament song or psalm is the same as it's always been. And it's this. This psalm was given to guide God's people into a life of holiness, righteousness, and justice so that they may live in the presence of God wherever they may reside. That's the way one Hebrew scholar has described it, and I liked it. Again, the purpose of this 15th psalm is to guide God's people in a life of holiness, righteousness, and justice so that they may live in the presence of God wherever they may reside on the earth. So essentially, Psalm 15 is a guide map to intimate communion with God in this life. And David used questions to catch our attention. And now he provides his inspired answer. And this is the second portion of the psalm. The answers are found in verses 2 through 5. And that's really what fills the rest of the psalm. 
And he describes the life of one who communes with Yahweh, both in a positive and negative sense. Verse 2 contains three positive descriptions. Verse 3 contains then three negative descriptions. Verse 4 is again positive. Verse 5 alternates back to the negative. So it's positive, negative, positive, negative. And we say, well, why did, why did, God, why did David do this? I believe it's because both positive and negative descriptions are needed for us. The person who would commune with God must have a life characterized not only of active righteousness, but also the absence of evil. You see, many people are just content to practice either the positive or the negative. And they might think it's just sufficient for them to avoid evil, but they lack the active righteousness that God calls us to. They may may strive to, care, to avoid any number of evil deeds in this life, but they, but they lack the devotion to obeying all of the commands. They're virtuous in one sense, but they're re- really no threat to the kingdom of darkness. Or conversely, a person may strive to carry out a number of righteous acts. They might be engaged in evangelism, say, or maybe even teaching the Bible, but secretly they're engaged in all sorts of hidden evil. But the person who truly communes with God in this psalm does both. He or she pursues active righteousness, active obedience, and also flees from all evil. And thus, Psalm 15 has both these negative and positive descriptions. And so in the middle of this psalm, this answer section, David describes really three areas of life. That's how I've kind of broken it down. First, he describes general patterns of life. Then he looks at personal relationships, and then finally, personal convictions. And so David begins to unfold his answer to the opening question of who may commune with God in verse 2. Look, look at it with me in your own Bible. Verse 2, he says, here he is, it's he who walks with integrity, works righteousness, and speaks truth in his heart. All three of the verbs in this verse, in this verse are, are verbs of repeated action. They describe habitual conduct, customary ways of life. Now we call them again patterns of life. In the man who communes with Yahweh first, he walks with integrity. Or your version might read, he walks blamelessly. Now, this does not mean that he is perfect, as if someone could live in sinless perfection, but it refers to one whose life is generally free from any moral blemish. It's one who consistently walks in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. Noah was such a man in the Old Testament. According to Genesis 6-8, Noah was a righteous man, blameless, same word, blameless in all his time. Noah walked with God. Abraham was also such a man. In Genesis 17-1, this was how Abraham was called to live to walk blamelessly before God. The New Testament might call this type of person as being above reproach. That's a common phrase in the New Testament. It means to be blameless and sort of far above any accusation against them. They're people that are very difficult to accuse with false accusations because their life is characterized by such a high degree of moral maturity and righteousness that accusations against them simply do not stick. People are tempted just that I cannot believe that about that person. They're above reproach, which then is leads us to the next description. David writes, the man who communes with, with the God, with the Lord, works righteousness. 
The man who dwells with dwells on Yahweh's holy hill is a man who's committed to doing what is right. His behavior is in accord with all of God's righteous standards. Two examples of righteous saints like this can be found in Luke chapter 1. Now, the parents of John the Baptist, Zacharias and Elizabeth. Luke chapter 1 verse 6 records this about them. It says they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commands and requirements of the Lord. Those are two examples of two Old Testament saints, although we see them in the New Testament, who walked righteously. They worked righteousness. They were blameless. These were two saints who were fully devoted to the Lord's will, which reminds us that Psalms 15 is not calling us to some hypothetical, unattainable standard. God expects us to be able to walk blamelessly, to work righteousness. And next, he also calls us to speak the truth in our hearts. That's the next phrase in verse 2. The man who is welcome inside of Yahweh's tent, he walks with integrity, he works righteousness, and he speaks the truth in his heart. This is a very unique phrase in Scripture, this putting together speaking truth, but in his heart. To speak the truth requires that the words that come out of your mouth be true. The things you say be true. The person who refuses, this is the person who refuses to engage in any form of deception. He, he does not lie. That's this type of person. He does not lie, period. You will not catch them lying. Everything that comes out of their mouth is true. It, Jesus uses the phrase, their yes means yes, and their no means no. But to speak the truth in your heart is deeper even than that. Beyond merely the right words and true words coming out of your mouth, but this is where the thoughts and the inclinations and the desires in your heart are also true. You see, a person who speaks the truth in their heart is a person who's not, not only concerned with the words coming out of their mouth, but they're also concerned with their thought life, the way they're thinking in their own head, what they're saying to themselves when no one else is around. They're concerned about the desires of their heart. Just as a reminder, if you desire sin, it is sin. It's sinful for us to desire things that God says is sinful. To desire to steal, to desire to take revenge, to desire to act out sexual impulses. These are sinful in and of themselves, sinful desires. But the Christian seeks to, seeks to be sanctified to the level of his desires. They desire for their internal thinking and processing all all, for all of them to accord and to line up with the truth. In Deuteronomy 6, Moses commanded the people of Israel in verse 6, he says, These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. I want these words on your heart. And Moses' desire was that God's people would have God's truth just saturating their lives. The truth of God should really just pulse and flow like blood being pumped from your heart, through your arteries, out into your furthest extremities. God's truth just going through us internally. In the New Testament, in James 3.14, James described the person who has bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in their hearts as lying against the truth. Very interesting. He says if you have bitter, bitter jealousy in your heart and you have a, a proud heart, then you're lying against the truth. That's what James says. So to be consumed with jealousy and pride is to be an internal liar. 
inconsistent in their heart. And so understanding this concept, David was intimately concerned with his own thought life. For example, David prayed in Psalm 19:14. This was David's prayer. He said, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. He also prayed in Psalm 86, 11. He said, teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. And he says, unite my heart to fear your name. May my whole heart fear you. Unite it all to fear you. David's prayer was for his entire thought life to be surrendered to the will of God. And this is a picture of a, of a man who communes with God. The pattern of life is one of a blameless walk before him. They work righteousness and they speak the truth, not only in their mouths, but also in their hearts. And there's really no reason this can't be true of each one of us. But first we must desire it. We must ask ourselves, do I want this? Do I want to commune with God in this way? I believe these should be our ambition, our goals in this life, to live this way. Next, David moves from the patterns of life to personal relationships. Look at verse 3, Psalm 15, verse 3. It says, He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Here we get a glimpse of how the man of God or the woman of God operates in relationship with others. It says he does not slander with his tongue. This word slander, interestingly, it's derived from the word to spy. It's actually the same root. And in the book of Joshua, as you, 12 men were sent out as spies to spy out the land. They, they went in on foot. They went in on, in stealth mode, sort of. So the slanderer or the gossip also goes about in stealth. Slander, like spying, is stealthy. It's hidden. To slander refers to someone walking around seeking tidbits of gossip to pass along to someone else. It's to live a life of espionage, really, sort of behaving as spies or conspirators, trafficking information with the purpose of, of really gaining an ear with others. The purpose of having something to say to others that will sort of make you look better in their eyes. So we could say to slander or to gossip in the scriptures is to share information about another purpose, for, about another person, for the heart reason of gaining something, some personal gain, sinful gain, we might add. And those who commune with God simply will not do it. They do not slander. That's what it says. And nor will they do evil to their neighbor. They do not do evil to their neighbor. As Jesus describes in the New Testament, a neighbor is simply here any fellow human being, another image bearer of God. And, and the man of God will not commit evil of any kind against them. They, they won't engage in evil. They won't wrong anyone. They don't want to commit evil against anyone. And the third negative statement regarding relationships found in verse Three is that the person who communes with God does not take up reproach against his friend. Uh, a reproach is some form of disgrace. It's, it's something that creates shame. So to take up reproach means to, to lift up or carry reproach to another. It means really to cause disgrace upon another person. And, and perhaps by something we say or maybe something we do. It's to bring disgrace upon others. And 
although it uses the word friends is the final word of verse 3, that might not be the best translation. Literally, the word means the nearest ones. The nearest ones, which of, or the nearest one. It, it, of course, then could mean friend. But really, the, the word describes those who are living in closest proximity to you, those who are relationally the closest to you. It can refer then to your personal family or your relatives, but it simply refers to those who are closest to you. So, so think about it this way. Those who have the closest walk with God in this life do nothing to disgrace the people who know them best, those who are nearest to them. So in this way, husbands, we can assess our own personal holiness by the way we treat our wife. Your wife has the most direct contact with you, and she sees the real you. She knows how godly you truly are. And the same is true of wives, of course. Wives, your husbands know the true state of your godliness, and not just the Sunday morning version of you, not just the Instagram version of you, but the consistent you. Students, your parents and your siblings know the real you. They see you. So the man or woman of God does not bring reproach against those who are closest to them. Uh, This means that those who are inside the home, uh, the way that the righteous man, the one who dwells with God, the way they are inside the home is completely consistent with the way they are outside the home. And we say, well, is that true of us? Is that true of you? If you're honest with yourself, do you bring reproach or disgrace upon the people in your life who are closest to you? What about in public? If those who are closest to you saw how you behaved in some certain social settings, maybe that would be at work or when you're at school, when you're away from the family, would it bring dishonor to them? What about in just the secrecy of your own heart, the way you live when no one else is around, would that bring reproach or disgrace upon those who are closest to you? You see, the closer a man walks with God, the greater blessing a man will be upon all of his relationships, in particular, his family. A close walk with God produces encouragement in the home. It inspires godliness in others, and it strengthens the faith of others. It does not bring disgrace. In verse 4, David continues to discuss the man of God's relationships to others. Look what it says there. It says, In whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but he honors those who fears the Lord. The term reprobate here is a bit of a startling term. It refers to one who is rejected by God in this life. And therefore, it's, it's a person who has rejected God and then has become rejected by God himself. So they've chosen to reject God, and so God says, okay, you're rejected. That's what this word is referring to. They've rejected God. Some versions translate this as a vile man, but that really doesn't capture the main idea of this, of this word, of one of rejection. This, this is a person who has been rejected by God and therefore lives in all sorts of evil, vile ways. And the godly person here wants nothing to do with them. Indeed, the godly Christian, my version says, despises them. And the basic meaning of this word despise means to accord little value to, accord little worth to. So the term doesn't necessarily refer to overt feelings of hatred or contempt or something like that. It just means that they don't see any worth in the way they live. They don't see any value in them. 
It's simply that they, they don't find them to be valuable. They don't find their life to be honoring or valuable at all. So the godly saint does then not desire to be influenced by them. They, they don't celebrate their debauchery. They don't revel in their ignorance. This makes me often think of Hollywood and how many Christians are still fascinated with the things of Hollywood and celebrity life uh, when these are people who have outright rejected God, or almost often the most vocal people uh, rejecting God, hating God. And for some reason, uh, the people who are most destructive, culturally speaking, actors, entertainers, celebrities who are overt haters of God, they often collect a strange fascination from people in the church. And it seems that that's backwards. Instead of fawning over this type of high uh, class celebrity people, we ought to be looking for people who honor the Lord, who fear the Lord, and then we honor them. That's how the next says, we honor those who fear the Lord. The individuals that we find in this life who are worthy, are living lives worthy of Christ, who are adorning the gospel of Jesus Christ, they should be celebrated. They should be honored in this life. We, we should want their influence in our lives and in our families' lives. So we should be on the lookout for these godly examples, people like this who fear the Lord, and then we honor them. And so these five lines provide here just a solid description of the type of men and women that we ought to aspire to be in terms of our relationships. And this is the type of person who, who dwells intimately with God, again, who, who lives with God. And so we've seen the patterns of life and we've seen what the personal relationships look like. And now I come to what we're calling personal convictions. Look at the end of verse four with me. Mine says, he swears to his own hurt and he does not change. I love this line. Now the NIV renders this, he keeps an oath even when it hurts. The man of God is a man of convictions. He studies the word of God. He understands what it says. He makes up his mind about what is right. And then he lives accordingly. He, he sets his course. His face is fixed. There's no wavering about him. No changing course midstream. No fluctuating between positions as the tides of culture change. Regardless of the cost, whether it be the loss of finances or the loss of relationships, he swears to his own hurt and he does not change. He has sort of a holy stubbornness about him. He's committed to doing what God has said is right. He swears once and then continues meeting the terms of his vow in the future, even if the negative consequences are difficult and bring difficulty into his life. This is the type of men and women that, that really God is after. And I think this is the type of Christians that we need more of today. Men and women who are willing to go against the flow in a godless culture. Living by deep convictions. Grounded on the word of God and then just committing to do what is right. These, these convictions bleed over into their personal finances, the way they handle money. Look at this in verse 5. He does not put out his money at interest. Nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. So here we see again these convictions on display. In the Old Testament, Israelites were forbidden from extracting interest on loans from fellow Israelites. For example, in Deuteronomy 23:19, it says, You shall not charge interest to your countrymen. That's what God said. No charging interest on money, food, or anything else. No interest. 
And so in, in ancient Israel, those who were facing poverty would often be in need of a loan just to keep living, to keep their family going. And so they'd come to another friend, a neighbor, and say, could you help us? Could you loan money to us? And those Israelites who were wealthy enough to loan money were not allowed to gain interest. However, God did permit, he did allow the charging of interest from foreigners. Deuteronomy 23.20, the very next verse says, You may charge interest to a foreigner, but to your own countrymen you shall not charge interest. It's interesting that in Psalm 15 here, there's, there's no mention of that provision here in Psalm 15. It just says he does not lend out his money at interest which seems to suggest that this righteous, godly man is just desiring to help others. He's living a life where he just wants to bless those around him, not seeking to make a profit off of others' misfortunes. The wicked man, by contrast, is callous, and he's only concerned with making a profit. The righteous are committed to giving as God gives. We find the same similar commands over in Leviticus 25. It says, do not take interest from him, but revere your God, that your countrymen may live with you. You shall not give him your silver at interest, nor your food for gain. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan to be your God. In other words, the godly people recognize God has given so much to us. How could I extract interest from others? Godly Christians recognize that their wealth is a gift from God, and thus they're charitable to others. And finally, they will not take a bribe. Now look again at the middle of verse 5. It says, he does not take a bribe against the innocent. A bribe. Exodus 23.8 says that a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise. That's what bribery does. It blinds the eyes of the wise. The same is repeated in Deuteronomy 16.19. You shall not distort justice. You shall not be partial. You shall not take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteousness, of the righteous. Proverbs 17.23 adds, The wicked accepts a bribe in secret to pervert the ways of justice. So over and over again, the scriptures testify that taking bribes is a distortion of justice. Show me a culture where bribery is common, and I'll show you rampant distortions of justice. And this is really how many, many countries operate around the world. It's been a grace and a blessing that ours has not, although it seems that that is on the rise as well. Deuteronomy 10.17 reveals God's relation to bribes. It says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who does not show partiality, nor does he take a bribe. So, so God loves justice. He is justice. He, he, God does not take bribes. Bribes distort justice. And therefore, the man of God and the woman of God is, just refuses adamantly to be, persu be persuaded by a bribe. In other words, he upholds justice. So if we look at this all together, here's, David, here's David's answer. Again, the question is, O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who, who may dwell on your holy hill? It's, it's the man or woman who is holy in all their patterns of life. They, they work righteousness. They walk in a blame, blameless way. The integrity is, the, is theirs. 
Their relationships are pure. They honor those who fear the Lord. They despise the reprobate. And then they have these deep convictions. They swear to their own hurt and they do not change. They will not take interest from those who they are helping and they will definitely not take a bribe. And so then David closes this song with this ancient song with a promise. Uh, look at it there at the end. He who does these things will never be shaken. I think this ending here is critical. Perhaps as we've walked through this psalm, you've been tempted to think, well, no one can live this way. I mean, this is just an unattainable standard. And maybe you question, is, is this actually possible? Is this the way that God really wants us to live? And I think if you're answering that, on one level, you're asking the right thing because you see uh, the type of integrity that God requires of us. But on the other hand, the answer should be yes. This is what God expects of us. This is what he wants us to pursue. And we know that from this promise. It says, he who does these things will never be shaken. Assuming that, yes, this is possible. You should set your mind and heart on living this way. You should want this for yourself. This is not a cruel, impossible standard. Rather, it's an achievable goal. No doubt it's not easy. It will take a, a life of intense discipline and, and dying to self and killing your own desires and saturating yourself in the word of God, but it is attainable. It's possible. I think this is the way that David lived in majority. So David here expects that some of his readers will, will, will understand this psalm and say, yes, I want to live this way. I see that this is what God is calling me to, and I'm going to set my heart to living this way. And so what, what is this promised blessing here? that David promises, well, it's that they will never be shaken. This is a common phrase used in the Psalms. Psalm 16, 8, for example, just the next song says, I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. I say, well, what does it mean to be shaken? Does it, does it mean that we will not face any trouble in this life? That we'll just, our life will be a breeze? And no, in fact... David uses this same language of being shaken in, verse, in Psalm 13 to describe his own hardship in this life. There, David says, my, avid, my adversaries will rejoice when I'm shaken. Assuming that in this life there will be difficulty, there will be turmoil and turbulence. If we live this sort of life, a godly life, we have no promise that our life will be free from trials and tribulations. In fact, we know that we should expect those. Jesus told us to expect tribulation in this life. And so instead, when David promised that the godly will not be shaken, he meant that their foundation would rest in eternity, that their lives would rest on an eternal foundation, that those who will not be shaken are a reference to, to those, it's a reference to those who have sort of driven down deep piles into the bedrock of eternity. They have sort of cast their anchor into the sea of eternity. And so come what may in this life, their eternity is secure. It may not be shaken. Their eternal foundation is set. So Psalm 15 is really the Old Testament equivalent to the book of James. It's how the godly live in this life, working out salvation and growing in sanctification. It's, Psalm 15 is not a manual for how we become righteous in a salvific sense before God. We have Romans for that. We have Galatians for that. But Psalms 15 is a description of the godly. 
It's a description of a sanctified saint with their eternity fixed. They will never be shaken. So I think if we are rightly understanding this psalm, it will just be inevitable for us to not walk away challenged and convicted here. That's what this psalm does to my heart. God, help me to live this way. May these things be true of us. And I hope that's how you are feeling. Going, yes, I want this. There's areas of my life where I see that I don't add up, that this isn't true of me, and I want to change those. I want to grow. I want to be more and more holy. I want to dwell with God in this life. That's what we need more of. We need more and more Christians who are just bent on communing with God in this life. That is our greatest need as Christians, to walk in holiness, to pursue godliness. So let's pray and ask for his help in that effort. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for Psalm 15. Lord, it is convicting. It's convicting to look into these truths. Lord, we pray that you would help us. Help us to live this way. We want to walk with you. We want to commune with you in this life. Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his death that does cover all of our sins. We praise you that we now have no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ that sets us free from bondage to sin, slavery to sin. We've now been set free to pursue holiness. And so, Lord, I pray that we would do that. We would use Psalm 15 to motivate us, to spur us on, that we would want those, that foundation that can never be shaken, just a, a life devoted to holiness, to godliness, to walking with you. Lord, we know we're far from this. James tells us that we all stumble in many ways. And so, Lord, when we do, we pray that when we sin, we pray that you'd help us to be quick to repent and to get back on path, get back to following Christ. Give us tender consciences. May we be burdened when we sin and would we repent quickly and would we seek forgiveness Lord I pray that it would not be uncommon for us to ask for forgiveness from others but that we'd be quick to repent Lord help us to grow in godliness in all these ways and so many more and Lord for any here who do not know Christ yet who do not have the Holy Spirit of God indwelling inside of them helping them to obey and to live a righteous life I just pray that you would draw them to yourself Would you convict them of their sins? Would you show them their great need of Jesus Christ? And would they humble themselves before Christ and be saved, be born again? We pray for their salvation. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.